Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces, and I am joined again by Charisma Mathen, who is here in our next Muskoka Chair Chats. And of course, Charisma, we were just joking that uh, from this point forward, we're going to insert the sounds of different animals associated with our Muskoka venture here. And uh, we've chosen the loon because today we're talking about Section 2 of the Charter, which engages not least freedom of expression. Of course, people, when they think of the noises associated with a cottaging, often think of loons. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about the concepts found in section two, and then I, I can say a few words about how this might come up in a national security context, and then we'll dive into the actual substance of section two. So what really is found in section two? Sure. And uh, happy Simcoe Day, by the way, to everyone from Ontario. I think it's still called that this uh, holiday Monday. So section two is entitled the fundamental freedoms. And it's probably one of the sections of the charter that corresponds most closely to classical ideals of rights. So very much negative rights against state interference. And there are four general subcategories in section two. So everyone is guaranteed the fundamental freedom of conscience and religion, that's section 2A. Freedom of expression, which includes a number of other concepts, including freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and then finally freedom of association. So those are all distinct rights that people enjoy. They have some similarities in the way that courts approach them. So they, it, it is helpful to think of them as the fundamental freedoms, but they also have distinct aspects to them. So generally what we can say is that the approach to these freedoms is they're defined quite broadly. Expression, for example, in the Canadian context is defined as anything that a person expresses meaning subject really to one limitation, which is where that expression takes the form of violence. And it might be helpful to think in contrast to the United States with the First Amendment's protection for freedom of speech, which everyone often thinks of as this absolute, extremely strong protection, and it is. But in the United States, there are categories of speech that are actually outside of the scope of the protection of the First Amendment, like obscenity or fraud. And so you don't even get to make your First Amendment argument in the United States, whereas in Canada, at the stage where you're arguing, look, I've suffered a violation of my freedom of expression, as long as you were trying to convey meaning, you'll be able to get over that hurdle. And then as we were talking about last week, the state could then try and justify that limit under Section 1. So it's a different framework. And yes, in some respects, it is more limited than than the American approach, but not in every respect. So that's really interesting because freedom of expression comes up in the national security context in a couple of different ways. Uh, So probably most famously, freedom of expression has come up in the debate about the definition of terrorist activity in the criminal code, where there isn't what we call a motive clause that says that terrorist activity is tied to listed kinetic conduct uh, that is violent, typically, but is done for a motive that it's political, religious, or ideological, at least in part. And there have been concerns expressed both by civil society, but then more recently in the courts, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court in Kawaja, 
that a motive provision trenches on freedom of expression. Why? Because it could have a chill effect on the expression of ideological viewpoints that are associated with terrorism. And, and, and there, as I recall, Charisma, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there the Supreme Court based its assessment on this distinction between on the one hand, expression that communicates meaning, and then that outer limit, which is violence or threats of violence, and said that threats or acts of violence are not protected by the Section 2 freedom of expression. And to the extent that this religious, ideological, political motivation is conflated with these kinetic acts of violence in the definition of terrorist activity, it's colored by that violence and therefore is not protected by Section 2. And so that's an, an interesting built-in limitation before you even get to a Section 1 discussion. And just one other point here, where it comes up elsewhere is if you look, for example, the definition in the CSIS Act, threats to the security of Canada, which circumscribe CSIS's security intelligence mandate, there's a carve out there essentially for dissent and protest. That's not the actual words, but dissent or protest, unless done in conjunction with the enumerated threats to the security of Canada, which include things like espionage, sabotage, foreign influenced activity, sedition, and terrorist activities. And so there, again, I think there's an effort to hive what would otherwise be expressive activities into a zone where perhaps they're not governed by the Section 2 uh, limits or arguably could could be justified under Section 1. And so that's interesting because we talked last day about the Charter not being an absolute instrument. And here's an example of where the lack of absolutism doesn't always require you to get to Section 1. That's right. I would just point out that for expression in particular, there are very few categories that are excluded outright. So you can think, for example, of much older crimes, so advocating violent overthrow of the state. In the Section 2B context, the mere advocacy of that is protected. It's once you express that view through actual physical confrontation, that there's clearly a meaning to that physical confrontation but the Supreme Court has said that's not going to be protected under 2B. Now, I would note that depending on the extremity of the expression, the government would have a strong case in at least some cases for trying to limit your right to express views that could lead to violence. But you do have to get to that stage, and this is really important, where the state is called upon to offer a justification. So, Charisma, are there other built-in limitations in Section 2. And I'm thinking here about, do I have a right to go to a library and loudly announce whatever views I wish? And so are there place uh, limitations, time and place limitations that are somehow outside the ambit of Section 2 protections? So the way that those time, place, and manner restrictions work is if they're reasonable, they're going to be upheld. But they don't negate your expressive right in that moment to say what it is that you intended to say. And the fact that you have suffered a violation of that freedom, your freedom has been curtailed. And remember, it has to be through some state action or some limit imposed on you by a state official. But time, place and manner restrictions are compatible with the overall purpose of Section 2B if they correspond with the limits that are articulated in Section 1, which, remember, apply to all charter limits. And so does that mean, let's say I go into a a public workplace, a a government workplace, and so we're talking about the conduct of the state. And within the government workplace, I 
issue proclamations with a bullhorn. And in a consequence, I'm, I'm ejected from that public place. Do I then demonstrate, if I'm to litigate, that my freedom of expression has been violated and the government has to turn around and justify that under Section 1? Or is the analysis simply confined to a reasonableness analysis that's really just you know Section 2, time, place, and matter? We don't even have to get to Section 1. I have to say, it's never been clear to me. Yeah, it's a good question because there is some ambiguity in some of the analysis in the core cases, because one of the things the court also talks about under Section 2B is this idea that expression is undergirded by what they call core values. And those core values are the search for truth, the individual fulfillment and flourishing, and political discourse. And so the more that those things are engaged by particular expression, the more seriously the court will look on the state limit. But I don't think it's accurate to say that if you have a sincere engagement in something that you're expressing, that the court is then going to engage in some sort of weighing of how important your expression is to determine whether you've had uh, a fundamental freedom that's been violated. As I say, there's some ambiguity in the case law, but I think for our purposes, it's probably safer to just think of it as a very broad protection at the outset that can then be subject to reasonable limits where the burden is on the state to justify those limits. So in other words, not too much emphasis should be placed on that time, matter, and place a sort of con- internal constraint in the charter because it, it's all going to come back to the same sort of preoccupations that are they're part of the section one reasonableness discussion. So, so I think that's right. Or at least there won't be markedly different kinds of factors that are going into the court's ultimate decision. Right. So let's talk about how section two might work in a section one justification context, because there are all sorts of circumstances where expression is limited in some way. And so probably the most famous example that will come to mind right away, and and you started by juxtaposing Canada with the US, and this is another interesting area of juxtaposition, would be things like hate crimes. So in Canada, there are speech crimes, there are hate crimes uh, where people can be punished criminally for what they say and nothing else. And so in that circumstance, how does it work from a charter perspective? Yeah, so that's probably the most dramatic departure that we have from the American First Amendment context is the imposition of criminal sanctions on people for what they are saying, not how they are saying it. For example, if you breach some other law in your expressive behavior or you take over a public space or something, but just for the fact that you have said something normally in there's other conditions, it's, it's content related. That sort of state control is very dramatic and is an example where Canada has taken a very different path to what freedom of expression means and how it can be reconciled with other values. So the criminal provisions we're talking about are the willful promotion of hatred and then secondarily the uh, promotion of genocide. Let's stick with the willful promotion of hatred. That's what people think of when they think of hate speech. So the criminal code did not define what hatred meant in that section, 
but it did limit it in terms of having to be directed at particular groups identified by, for example, race or religion. So this is speech that is made other than in private conversations. There has to be some kind of public aspect to it that is directed at particular groups that willfully, that's a state of mind word that indicates a certain kind of intention, promotes hatred. What does hatred mean? And in a famous decision involving an Alberta school teacher named Jim Keekstra, who taught virulently anti-Semitic things to his middle school and, and high school students, the Supreme Court said hatred means an extreme emotion. It means trying to convey enmity, extreme ill will and animosity against a particular group. And it it will often be associated with particular tropes or memes, for example, in the case of Jewish people, what they've called the blood libel against the Jewish people that go back centuries. And it entails a very small category of extreme speech. That is the level at which you can be then subject to criminal sanction. I just jump in there and and ask more precisely. And so there's this discourse obviously now about when hate arises. And and so if we were to have a scale of offensive speech and we start at uh, what we would call rude speech, your basic trolling on the internet or what have you, that's not going to be hate speech. What about offensive speech that's racist per se? Is it merely enough that it's racist, that it invokes racial stereotypes to constitute hate speech? Or are we talking about even another gradation of seriousness? I would say that racist speech by itself does not rise to the level of hatred that the Supreme Court talked about in the Keekstra case and then later affirmed in a case called What Caught. So mere racial animus or racist tropes does not, in my view, rise to the level of hate speech. It can in certain cases, but the court was careful, I think, to really emphasize how extreme this speech is. Again, this is for the purpose of criminal liability. There are some other non-criminal legal regimes in Canada, like human rights codes, where the level may not necessarily be at, at that high. We don't have to get into that. But mere racist speech, I don't think qualifies. It has to cross a line. Now, the difficulty is what that line is is context specific. It might depend, for example, on the particular group and the sorts of things that have been said about them over history. So if you have a group that is somewhat newer in terms of our consciousness, how they are oppressed, that could factor in. And of course, this is going to be made on a case-by-case basis. The criminal code is not going to tell us if you have this word it's a slam dunk for hate speech. So there is a fuzziness there. And we don't actually have that many hate speech prosecutions in Canada to go by. We have a few that rely on, you can almost say, almost more older or conventional understandings of how hate speech was first conceived in the 1970s and 80s. So then putting together the elements of the criminal code offense, willful promotion of, of hatred. So we've got that willful, then we've got this concept of hatred, which is, as you've described it, quite narrow. We're talking about a very high level of animus, if you will, that's associated with hate speech. And so now we're talking about whether that satisfies a constitutional discipline 
Uh, so the first question, I suppose, is that still protected speech under Section 2 of the Charter? Uh, yes, it is still protected speech under Section 2B. It, it, your being subject to criminal liability is subjecting you to a violation of your freedom of expression. But then the question is, can it be justified as a reasonable limit? I did just want to say a couple of other things just to help our um, listeners understand. The other part about the definition of hate speech is that mm. in the context in which it was expressed, there needs to be some likelihood that it would promote the hatred, right? So that it would be apt to arouse certain extreme emotions in the listeners of that speech. But you don't have to prove that hatred was actually caused. And the other part that's important is there are a limited number of defenses. For example, truth. For example, if you were trying to express an opinion about a subject of religious debate, not any good faith debate, religious debate, if for the purpose of research or some other empirical endeavor, you're attempting to point out the expression of hatred in order to counter it, right? So there are some defenses as well. I just want, I just thought it was important to put that on the table. And so those defenses, because they temper the reach of this hate crime provision must be important then in assessing the reasonableness once we get to a section one analysis. Because if we've said that the speech, no, no matter how odious, in this case, it's odious speech as you can imagine, is still protected by section two, then the only way that this provision can stand is if there's a section one justification. And so do you want to walk us through how that section one justification operates in relation to something like hate speech? Yes, absolutely. In this case, we have to appreciate that section one of the charter, which last week I was explaining, was really developed by the court in a seminal case called Regina and Oaks, a criminal law case. Section one has a variety of steps that the government needs to go through in order to show that something is a reasonable limit. They need to show that the limit is prescribed by law. In the case of the criminal code, that's not a problem because you can open the criminal statute and there's the limit. So we don't have to get into the, what prescribed by law means other than that. And then they need to show it's a reasonable limit that's demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And the way the court approaches that question and what the government will show is first that there's what we call a pressing and substantial objective to the law. So what the law is trying to do, what it's trying to achieve is important enough, at least in the abstract, to justify limiting our charter rights, which we otherwise hold so dear. It is generally not that difficult for the parliament to show that there was a pressing and substantial objective. That's not that high a bar. But then you have to show, okay, you have this important goal for this legislation. How did you go about doing it? What were the means that you employed to achieve that objective? And are those means rationally connected to the objective? Do those means minimally impair the charter rights of the individuals who are implicated by this law? And then finally, is there an overall what we call proportionality between the positive things that the law is trying to achieve, and the negative impact on your charter. So in the case of hate speech, the court as a whole was willing to accept that there is a pressing and substantial objective in Canada to counter hate propaganda, that it's harmful in and of itself. Where the court divided, but a majority uh, ultimately sustained the law, was that there is a rational connection between trying to stamp out hate speech and imposing criminal consequences that it is a minimal impairment 
Here, I think the extreme nature of the speech that the court, as the court defined it, was really important. And then finally, that overall proportional balancing. Is the trade-off worth it? That's the other way you can think of it. And that is something that a judge, or in this case, normally a panel of appellate judges, is going to look at having regard to all kinds of arguments made by all kinds of parties before. It's, it's ineluctably a question of values and judgment. And it's something on which reasonable people can definitely disagree. And I remember also you mentioned the idea that it was willful promotion of hatred. I, I recall that the majority in Keekstra was quite preoccupied by the presence of the term willful. That is, you really want the outcome. That is, you want the hatred uh, as the outcome. And that that further narrowed the scope. We're not talking here about you were negligent or somehow careless or even that you didn't turn your mind to it. You really wanted this outcome and that reduces the scope. And so that matters for section one. And then those defenses you mentioned, which again, also tempered the scope. I seem to recall that the majority looked at those defenses and said, these also render this offense more proportional. And so it's all these ingredients, as you were suggesting, that go into the brew. And But for the presence of these, this, the statutory language in this offense, maybe the outcome would have been quite different. And so it's not hate crime per se is constitutional under Section 1. It's just that the particularities of this offense survive Section 1 because of, of the details, the words matter. I I would definitely agree with that. It's interesting because in this case, you had expressed defenses that Parliament had already put in place. It's interesting to think what would have happened if there hadn't been those defenses. Would the court just have struck down the law? Because, for example, it's not a proportional infringement of freedom of expression if we're going to stamp out true statements, however you want to think about that. Or would they have used Uh, their power in terms of remedies to read in certain defenses, which seems maybe somewhat strange, but the court has done that in other cases. For example, a a really famous case involving child pornography, where they actually said the proper way to interpret this provision so that it is constitutional is to read in certain aspects to it. In effect, that's a very dramatic thing for the court to do because it starts to sound like they're really creating the law themselves. It's not unprecedented for them to do that. Yeah, and the interesting thing is this came up most recently in national security space in the debate over Bill C-51 in 2015 and the promotion of terrorism offense that was introduced as a speech crime in 2015. And it was modeled on this promotion of hatred offense in the criminal code with some important distinctions. First of all, it didn't use the term willful. It had a different indicator of intent. Secondly, it wasn't tied to hatred. It was tied to terrorism offenses. And for those who have listened to this podcast series since its inception, the terrorism offense is an incredibly vast uh, range of potential conduct that's very far removed potentially from actual kinetic acts of violence, because you can have facilitation of uh, an, an act that down the path could amount to violence. And so we're talking about speech piled upon speech, piled upon speech potentially. And then it didn't have any of these defenses. And so the issue was, could you draw a straight line from Keekstra and conclude that this uh, terrorism offense that was introduced in 2015 would be constitutional? And the view that Kent Roach and I took was that, no, you couldn't draw that straight line. And, and indeed, there was a lot of doubt as to its constitutionality because it lacked the features that the majority in the Supreme Court pointed to in deciding that the hate crime offense could be defended under Section 1. And the back end of that story is that in 2019 in Bill C-59, that speech offense was modified and turned to a variant of what we would call a counseling offense in mm. criminal law. And, and you can describe it better than I, but counseling is much more proximate to the actual 
harmful conduct in question, that is the actual criminal conduct, often an act of violence, than was the attenuated risk that you were piling speech upon speech associated with the original iteration of this offense. And counseling also requires, again, this heightened mental state where the Crown would need to prove that you intended to convince someone, let's say, to do a particular thing. I will, just to be completely precise about that use of the term willfully, and we were talking about it's the willful promotion of hatred, you don't actually have to show that the person subjectively wanted the hatred to occur, but they had a a subjective awareness that the hatred was possible and they were willing to take the risk. They didn't care that the hatred might arise. That was confirmed in subsequent case law, but for sure, sheer negligence is not enough. And uh, there needs to be that mental state that you are aware at the very least, you are engaging in things that other people could see as hateful. Are there other things, Charisma, that uh, our listeners should know about Section 2? We've been talking a lot about freedom of expression here. Of course, Section 2 covers more than simply freedom of expression. Yeah, are there other things? There's a lifetime of... (laughs) (laughs) discovery for section two, even freedom of expression, we barely scratched the surface. There's a whole other debate to be had about human rights codes, which include, for example, their reach in some cases to discriminatory publications. And I got into an interesting Twitter debate a couple of years ago over whether the definition of something being a discriminatory publication could extend to a law journal article that advocated something that other people found hateful, right? Could it actually engage in scholarship? And some people seem to think that'd be no problem. I had a different view. So there's lots even more around freedom of expression. But yes, I would say today that we are more and more attuned to uh, freedom of religion issues, which raises all kinds of really fascinating questions, depending on which religious group is claiming either that their freedom is being interfered with, or perhaps in some ways that they're being coerced or subject to state pressures with regard to their practice. There's an interesting debate around the extent to which in legislative or deliberative bodies, is it okay to start that session with the Lord's Prayer? There's a fascinating case from uh, Quebec from a few years ago involving a, a city, a municipal or city council, where that was precisely the issue. And you have this really neat uh, debate or discussion on the court about the duty of the state to be neutral right? We, there's a debate in Canada over the degree to which we have separation of church and state. Another really foundational American concept, do we have it in Canada? I am among those who think that you can find support for that. Other scholars take a different view. So there's just a ton of incredibly fascinating issues arising now and certainly over the last decade around freedom of religion. Maybe we could just talk about one in the time we have remaining, which is just a few minutes. And so one of the things I've always wondered is how do you decide whether a religion is really a religion? And so freedom of religion, so can I have a religion of one? I really deeply believe in, you know, take any arbitrary conspiracy theory from the internet that begins to bear the imprimatur of some religions and say, this is now my religion. Uh, and so now I exercise a freedom of religion in relation to it. So what is, how do we define a religion for constitutional purposes? So the definition of religion is not as important as looking to the particular belief or practice that the person wishes to either espouse or engage in. and Does that belief or practice relate somehow to the person's conception of the divine 
And is it sincere on their part? This is also a really important aspect of Canadian freedom of religion analysis that was really developed in the last 15 years, where the focus is very much on the individual. And the court in another divided decision in a case called Amsalem, which dealt with certain interpretations of Jewish law, the majority of the court was very clear that it didn't want to go beyond assessing the sincerity of the belief because it didn't want the court to then get into the practice of weighing questions of religious dogma, calling religious leaders, for example, to offer their interpretation. And they said that just that takes the court into a zone that we're not comfortable with, that's not productive, and that is just not a good idea. On the other hand, you did have some judges in the minority that said, if you go down that path, it seems to be getting us away from what a religion is in the first place. And so being concerned with the idea that you could have a religion of one. But in general, there have been a few judges in recent cases that have expressed some discomfort with how broad the understanding of religious freedom is. In general, the court is stuck to that. There was a really interesting case in the last year involving Indigenous spirituality, where the particular belief related to a tract of land in BC, where the court in a divided decision said, religious beliefs and freedoms don't extend protection to particular places. It just relates to your own practice. And so that was a majority view on the Supreme Court that was criticized by a number of people for perhaps being insensitive to the way that Indigenous spirituality is practiced. But also, just for some people, it just it seems strange that you would impose that limit. But I read the majority's approach in that case as being a way to retrench a little bit from this really broad approach to freedom of religion. Now, I will point out, that's not the end of the story, because you still have section one. But maybe it's a little less comfortable for the court to be imposing reasonable limits on freedom of religion. And so for some members of the court, they want to start to perhaps put some more boundaries around the meaning of Section 2A. And just the final point I'll make is that the first fundamental freedom articulated in the Charters, Section 2, is freedom of conscience. Mm -hmm. And it's really unfortunate. We have very little case law jurisprudence on that fundamental freedom, which I think is at least as important as freedom of religion. That's interesting. I wonder whether the Supreme Court's position in relation to religious freedom protecting places would be quite as sustainable if, say, Jerusalem was in Canada. It is so historically uh, dependent as well. I, I agree. And that's one of the criticisms is that may correspond neatly to how majoritarian religions in the Western tradition have operated, but it's not maybe doesn't make as much sense applied to other religious traditions. Great. Once again, thank you, Charisma, for joining us in this Muskoka Chair Chat. Uh, Section two is a rich area, both in terms of just the way we organize our society and what we value in it. And fundamental freedoms is an appropriate descriptor for these things that are found in section two. And so we're going to end this podcast on on this topic of freedom of religion, and we're going to steer our discussion next day through other rights that we listed at the beginning. And so I think we're going to move on to what, Section 7, I think, is our next topic, Charisma? I think that's right. And so that's a, a deep area of, for inquiry. It's a 
perplexing area, shall we say. It's one of the, I find one of the more perplexing rights in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and yet one that comes up very frequently, including in national security space. So thanks very much, Charisma, for joining us again. It's my pleasure. And I just have to say now I have the word kinetic in my head, like an <laughs> earworm. And whenever you said it, I was thinking of the bionic woman, which probably severely ages me, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I borrowed that from the, the the JAG folks and they always say that I'm using it wrong because it has a particular meaning in the military space, but I kind of like it because it gives that sense of physical action. All right. Thanks very much. And we'll talk next week. Take care. Bye.